0: Aaron here. The NFL's back, and DraftKings Sportsbook, official sports betting partner of the NFL, is giving all new players a can't-miss offer for week one. Bet just $1 on any NFL game during the first week of the season and receive $200 in free bets instantly, no matter what. Take advantage of this limited-time offer now. To reiterate, DraftKings is giving all new players $200 in free bets instantly when you place a bet of $1 or more on any Week 1 game. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app to check out all the great promotions and daily odds boosts. Plus, you can make every game a big game with same-game parlays. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any Week 1 game. That's promo code THPN to get your free $200 in free bets instantly. For a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call one 800 GAMBLE Or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT.
1: This is Billy Bowl of A Wolf Among Wolves, and I am on the NBA beat.
0: Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome in. This is Aaron, hosting a special book episode in which Pete Croato discusses his debut book, From Hang Time to Primetime Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern Day NBA. Pete's work has appeared all over, most notably in the New York Times, GQ, Men's Journal, Columbia Journalism Review, Rollingstone.com and SportsIllustrated.com. Most of the time, the narrative of how the NBA evolved into the global super brand we see today gets oversimplified. Thanks to the author's tireless reporting and research, From hang Time to Primetime delivers excellent storytelling to illuminate precisely how the NBA evolved, including the many social, cultural, and business factors that too often get neglected when the story of the NBA's massive growth is told. As a movie theater cashier in central New Jersey in 1997, Pete Croato sold tickets to film director Kevin Smith as well as drummer Max Weinberg. Speaking of musicians, Pete's mom's older sister Mary was the founder and lead singer of a girl group that had a couple hits in the 1960s. She now lives in Brooklyn. Last but not least, Pete considers himself a Seinfeld fanatic and has seen every episode about five times apiece. George Costanza is not only his favorite character from the show, but probably his all-time favorite sitcom character. And the show reached its apex, in his opinion, near the end of its run from 1995 through 97. Without further ado, let's get into our discussion of his excellent book. Hey Pete, I loved your book. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining me.
1: Aaron, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is great.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Let's dig in. I have a lot that I'm looking forward to discussing with you. So this is your first book, which I think is impressive in and of itself. It's a really good concept, but I think you executed it extremely well with painstaking research, thorough reporting, clean storytelling Take me through, if you can, just the most noteworthy parts of the process, including what the biggest challenges were that you faced, and also the
1: stages or moments that you felt were most rewarding. I mean, the process for writing the book, I mean, it's a complicated question. It's funny. I kind of consider the book to sort of to be a, um, a mad sprint. Uh, I only had about a little over a year to write and report this. So it was—I think—16 months was the the final tally between research, reporting, and writing this thing. So it was very much just a, a mad dash to the deadline. So I—I yeah. I don't really—it's ha- funny. Like people have asked me that. like, "Oh, what were the challenges and what were the highs and the lows?" And to be honest with you, there really was no choice. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been—I've been a professional writer for 23 years. I've been a freelance writer for about 15. And one thing I've learned is that this is a job, you know, and I don't really have time to kind of get wrapped up in um, the theatrics of writing and, Oh, waiting for the muse to arrive or, you know, kind of looking down, so to speak, I just have to go and just do it. So it was a very, it was almost like being shot out of a cannon where you just, you kind of just, all right, I'm just doing this. And to add to that, I really, you know, I love this topic so much and I, I, I enjoyed the reporting and the writing of this so much that it didn't really feel like work. I mean, I've had a lot of shitty jobs in my life. You know, I, I edited a trade magazine for three and a half years, I worked retail jobs for several years of my 30s. And those are jobs that were just range from being annoying to soul crushing. So to have a chance to write a book uh and to write it on a subject that i enjoy that i that i love and i wanted to know more about it really wasn't as hard as i thought it would be so because a the topic was so fascinating to me but it was just work it was just okay well i'm up i'm up now i got to just you know hit the ground running do my work like i like i do every day you know i maybe if i were younger i'd, I'd have a better answer for you in terms of what it was like. Uh, But to me, it was just working on the same assignment for a year and, you know, for 16 months.
0: No, that's definitely understandable. And you sound like a grizzled veteran where (laughs) you just, you put your head down and and you do the work, but also it sounds like you enjoyed the journey. Like there weren't any um, real highs or lows. It was just like, you were pretty even keeled and you're just doing what you had to do to
1: get the job done. And it sounds like it was really fulfilling too, am I right? It was very fulfilling. It was very fulfilling. I mean there were and there were ch- there were times where it was difficult. I mean, you know, my wife and I uh you know, have a daughter. She's now 4, but she was, you know, a, a toddler at the time when I wrote and reported most of this. She was very very young. And, you know, it's hard to be you know, being a dad is a very emotionally taxing demanding uh responsibility and writing a book is is hard so there were there were times where it was difficult and i and i struggled but i remembered that this is that this is the fun stuff like i have a note on my i had a note on my bolden board where you know i know this is that reads just have fun you know that was a mantra that i kind of repeated to myself each day is that you know just i wanted Mm -hmm. to enjoy this i wanted this to be fun because i've had situations where I haven't enjoyed the ride and I wanted to enjoy the ride. And I think I did a pretty good job of that. And yeah, I mean, I guess maybe you're right. There's maybe there's part of it where if I was wrote this when I was, you know, 24 instead of 44, um, you know, I'd have more highs and lows, but at this point now it's just, I've run this race enough times to, to know how to get at the finish line. And, you know, it's freelancing helps with that a lot.
0: Totally. Now getting more into the content of the book, there's an important passage a few pages into the introduction, just after you open the narrative with Derek Fisher's debut performance on Dancing with the Stars. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really good hook to get into Thanks. the story. I'm going to. You're welcome. I'm going to read the passage. The narrative of the NBA's rise to become arguably the world's second most popular sport is frequently summed up as a rapid-fire afterthought: Bird, mm-hmm. Magic, Michael Stern. That's Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan and longtime NBA commissioner David Stern. That is correct, but it neglects the myriad of social, cultural, and business factors that contributed to Derek Fisher, sashaying, and sequins. Now, I read that part because I think it expertly lays out what the book sets out to contextualize and explain, basically like Mm -hmm. the book's prompt. But Mm -hmm. I also want to hear how you came up with the idea to go with that specific angle.
1: That's a, I'm glad you pointed that out. And thank you for that. Uh, and I wanted, And that's exactly what I wanted to do with that scene. It's just to point out, here's how we got here. Here's where the air, NBA stands now. Um, that to me, that point illustrates exactly just where the NBA is. And I remember when it came out, when, when it was all over Twitter, it, it just seemed so preposterous. And so, and so, and so light, but if that, had, but then I thought, well, if this had been done in 1983 or 1984, it would have been a complete, people would have lost their goddamn minds. They would have, they would have been like, what the, you know, forget about the racial dynamics, but just, you know, a rap song on a primetime network. So, yeah, I, I just thought that was a perfect introduction to this is where the NBA is now. And I'm going to tell you how we got to this point. And, and yeah, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I just wanted to tell people that, look, you know, you, we, we sometimes just assume that, well, you know, Michael Jordan came along or Larry Bird came along and that was it. Everything was fine. And no, it wasn't, it wasn't that way. And I think people sometimes forget just how miraculous it is that something like Derek Fisher's dancing with the stars uh, number can come up and we don't care. The fact that we don't care is the miraculous part of it.
0: Yeah. And I think someone who's a little bit younger, um, like me, I was born in 1989 may Mm -hmm. um, have a tendency to take for granted the NBA's global role right now in in the Mm -hmm. conversation in sports and entertainment.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that's look, I became a basketball fan in, let's see, 1990, 1991. Like, yeah, around that time. And at that point, the NBA was a full-fledged business behemoth. It had Jordan, you know, magic was wrapping things up, bird was wrapping things up, but it was an everyday presence. You know, I had no trouble finding games on cable. I had no trouble finding games on NBC. They ran commercials endlessly. And that's, that's a good point. Like we assume that this is always, it's always been this way. We assume that games have been available with the click of a button. We assume that the, you know, that, that we can find, um, we can find our favorite team's gear or our favorite uh, player's shoes you know, so easily. But that wasn't the case. It was a long, hard struggle to get to relevance. And, you know, as time goes on, and as the NBA gets bigger and bigger, and the players become bigger stars, we're going to forget that. And we're already forgetting that. I mean, there's a great article that came out a few years ago. Paolo Gugetti of The uh, Ringer went to All-Star Game Weekend in LA and asked players about Michael Jordan's impact. And these players, you know, I grew up with Michael Jordan, sort of just being a known fact. Like Michael Jordan was America. He shared screen time with Bugs Bunny and Michael Jackson. Like he was a, he was part of the American culture. And these players, almost to a man, really didn't really didn't have, you know, they you know MJ had no impact with these guys. Like, oh, I know him from Space Jam and his sneakers, and but they don't they knew Michael Jordan as sort of sort of an antique. And as time goes on, we're gonna we're gonna forget. About those precedents, we're going to forget about those little strokes that led to the big picture that we see now, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with this book. Is that I wanted, I wanted to set that. I wanted to make sure that that those people uh, and you know and and the NBA in its I guess in its adolescence wasn't forgotten.
0: I'm assuming you also surveyed relevant literature and saw that a lot of times it does tend to be oversimplified, where some of the behind the scenes, business, marketing mm-hmm. elements are not really discussed. And sometimes it's more of just, okay, really Michael Jordan heavy or only mm-hmm. David Stern, but not really some of the, the details that are a little bit more granular. So uh, I appreciate that you did that. I want to transition to David Stern. Mm-hmm. I know, unfortunately, you didn't get the chance to talk to him while he was alive. You spoke right. with dozens of NBA mm-hmm. employees who got to know him intimately, worked with him closely. That shines through in the book. What would you say is the biggest misunderstanding about David Stern's legacy? Or maybe if there's not a misunderstanding that stands out, what element of his otherworldly impact do you think is not talked about enough these days?
1: That's a really good question. Um I think with David Stern, I think what gets lost is that he was was how in, evangelical he was. He could be abrupt, he could be mean, he could be a bully, but he was somebody who truly believed in the NBA and what it could offer. I mean, he was its biggest cheerleader. And for all of his business acumen and all of his marketing acumen, I think what gets lost is that he was inarguably the NBA's biggest fan. And he was somebody who wanted people to love the NBA as much as he did. And I think I think that probably gets lost in, in the fact that, you know, when he retired in 2014, the NBA was this international colossal. I mean, it was such a – even now, I mean, I, I, I think I read Ben Goliver's book. He mentions that the NBA made $8 billion in profit, I think, in 2019 or 2020. It's an astronomical number. Yeah, I think people get so tied up in the NBA as being this gigantic business and, and as David Stern is rightfully being credited as the orchestrator of that, that we, we forget that he was just, he was the NBA's biggest fan. I mean, he was somebody who, you know, he had a vision for what the NBA could be and he wanted to sell. He sold everyone he came across uh, on his journey on that vision, whether it was business partners, uh, prospective employees, you know, he, he was, for all of his faults, and David Stern had many faults, his passion for the game, his love of the NBA was absolutely unsullied. He was somebody that just was a basketball fan through and through. And I think that's why people gravitated toward him, because he, he, he cared so much about the NBA.
0: And as I just mentioned, you made a conscious choice to interview and quote in the book so many NBA entertainment staff, Mm -hmm. people a lot of the time who made critical contributions behind the scenes, but whose names are not known to the general public. Stephen Kuntz had a good quote, speaking of uh, the NBA entertainment cameramen and production crews he said, and there are a lot of good quotes. This is just one. We were directly responsible for popularizing mm-hmm. the game, romanticizing the game. How invaluable from your perspective were the contributions of these virtual unknowns and
1: making the NBA into the global brand that we see today? Oh, they were huge because they, they continued the storyline of the NBA. You know, the NBA was all about narratives and all about um, entertainment. You know, David Stern, you know, in the book, he talks about wanting the NBA to be the Disney of sports. And those NBA entertainment specials, videotapes, they were part of that propaganda. They were part of that packaging where, you know, those highlights and those footage that, you know, that guys like Coons and um, Don Sperling and Heidi Pilar, you know, countless individuals, they were responsible for, for, for crafting that narrative that got that got kids like myself hooked on the nba and it and it was it was everything from videos to specials to inside stuff which came along in 1990 um which was directly geared towards kids so nba entertainment played a huge role in the nba's ascension because it, it provided sort of a gateway drug for kids to get into the game and and they did it expertly i mean i, I in fact my first introduction to the nba was via video cassettes, um, you know. It was through dazzling dunks and basketball bloopers, and I believe uh, Super Slams of the NBA. Those are the two videos that I saw. I think when I was twelve or thirteen, that made me say, "Holy, fuck, look at this! This is amazing!" And then from then, you then from and then from then, I I, I got into uh, the you know I became a Knicks fan, and and you know, you know which was not good for my health, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, those, those those the NBA entertainment was just. Absolutely critical in building the NBA brand. Not just, and again, with commercials, uh, with videos, with television shows like Inside Stuff, and those specials also um, permeated into international markets. So, absolutely, NBA Entertainment was critical in the NBA's uh, rise to where it is today. No question.
0: The thing you just said about your introduction to um, basketball fandom um, mm-hmm. with the VHS tapes reminds me of. The anecdote you talk about with regard to Dave Zirin, who's Mm -hmm. been a guest on this show too, where he walked those three blocks to um, Video Connection Mm -hmm. on New York's Upper West Side just to get those highlight reels and stuff. I I thought that was really cool how you incorporated various interview subjects, anecdotes to get into different topics that you were discussing.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. Look, I mean, I this book is really I mean, is really about the people. You know, I know that the the, the book is really, I think, in a lot of ways, a business book in the NBA's growth. But really, it's it's driven by people and, you know, and not just from people who worked in the NBA, who cared about the product, who loved basketball and just wanted to be part of growing the game. But it also it's also with the people, the people that were captivated by it. And and yeah, I mean I asked, yeah, you know, Dave was a good example of that because he, you know, and I actually it's funny, I called him again to ask him about the video store. I think he That's may have cool. been a little put off on it because if you're gonna call Dave Zyron, you're not gonna you don't want to talk to him about <laughs> um you know a trip to the video store he made in the in the mid 1980s. But those you know, sports are a communal experience. They're a personal experience, not just for, and it's 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 not only for the people who watch the games, but it's also the people who 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 put those games together. And I know that that might seem very naive to say when we're talking about uh, organizations that make billions upon billions of dollars. But it's a people business, and sometimes these people are good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're um, they're wide-eyed and, and eager to make a difference. But it's it's always about the people, and I think that's the one thing about sports books yeah. that I think people who aren't familiar with them get bogged down. Is well, I'm not interested in in, in the 27 Yankees or the 73 uh, Lakers or, or whatever. But if you're interested in people and their problems and their desires then that book is as useful or as enlightening as any book you're going to read and you know i wanted that to come across i wanted to write a book that i think people connected to and would enjoy if they're not a sports fan i mean my parents don't like basketball my parents are not sports fans and you know they they read the book and and they had they they, they pointed out things that were wrong with it as parents do, but um you know they they enjoyed it and I, that's what i wanted i wanted i wanted people to who weren't sports fans to enjoy the book and, and get something out of it. So,
0: no, I don't think that's naive at all. It really is about people. But speaking of people, another behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. person was Leah Wilcox. Leah? I'm not mm-hmm. sure if I'm pronouncing your name properly. It's Leah
1: Wilcox, yeah.
0: Leah Wilcox. The thing that I thought was so cool, that, again, another thing that someone um, of my era might assume has always been the case is that... They weren't using contemporary music to pair with highlights before that, Mm -hmm. really. And I just thought it was just so fascinating to learn that um, she got close with the players, knew what they were listening to, and then was able to relay that to the people who made those videos. And it worked seamlessly. Another individual, Mm -hmm. though, who didn't work for the NBA, Kay Koplovitz, founder of USA Network, I loved how you included her contribution, because just like Stern, Bird, Magic, and MJ might steal the thunder, even though they're all very important, it, things get mm-hmm. oversimplified in the narrative. ESPN, I could see easily overshadowing the contributions of, of someone like a compliment. Mm-hmm. It's a USA Network. You
1: know, those are, those are two people that I think play such a huge role in this story. And you're right. Look, there's always a precedent to something, I think. There's all like. You see that with players now. I mean, if you if you look at Giannis Antetokounmpo, I see a lot of Dr. J in him. I see a lot of Connie Hawkins in him. Um, you know, I see, and, and you know, I, for example, like LeBron James, I think he's very much a souped-up version of Magic Johnson. And the same thing applies with business. I mean, USA Network was was on the ball before ESPN. And, yeah, and again, going back to the people part of it, Absolutely. Leah Wilcox is someone who you know. I don't even know. No one really knew what her title was, but she was somebody who was just who crafted these deeply personal connections with everyone she met, and that was her role. Her role was just to you know, in, in, in an environment of the NBA, and at the NBA at the time it was very it was a very small network of players and employees. Someone like that who could just sort of you know put you at ease and and knew everyone was invaluable. But Kay to me is one of those forgotten icons. I mean, you hear all about Rune Arledge and um, you know, John Walsh at HPN, but but Kay Koplovicz was somebody who, you know, I, I think she doesn't get enough credit for kind of seeing what cable could be. And it was a, it was a great pleasure to talk to her in her office for, you know, an hour and just mm-hmm. and she's also very smart because she's the one person who I sent clips to a bunch of people for the interview. And she was the only person who mentioned that, you know what, I I, I saw your clips. I see what you're doing here. Because the clips, the, the, the stories that I had written, I tried to build as the base for this book. And she saw that. No one else saw that. So Kay is a really sharp, very um, – there's a reason why she's a, why she's a legend in, in the field. Because she's, I think she's, she's frequently the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's briefly discuss the impact of Marvin Gaye's iconic rendition of the National Mm -hmm. Anthem before the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. It obviously resonated with you um, just as it being an impactful force Mm -hmm. in the whole narrative. But as you also mentioned, it's one of many seminal moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but clearly it's important to you. You devoted a whole chapter to it. You wrote a Grantland piece on it in 2013. Mm-hmm. Why is it so important? And um, just why does it resonate with you so much?
1: Because to me, well, first, I think it's the best national anthem performance of all time. I mm-hmm. I, I think it's that good. It elevates a dirge. That's not a word, but I'm going to use it. A dirge <laughs> Um, some I would even say turgid piece of music into something that is an an R classic. I think. Yeah, you it's,
0: you went with stodgy, jingoistic dirge in your. There we go. So
1: I, I I'm onto something. <laughs> so um, that's that's actually not bad. It sounds better when it you turned read it into um,
0: baby making music as you wrote.
1: There you go. So that's the fir- uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is I think that was the NBA's first steps into embracing what it was. That it was a sport that was that was primarily black, and the players were black, and the fans were black, and that it wasn't going to just follow the, the same script of baseball and football, and just sort of be you know part of America's game with tradition. That anthem to me set the NBA on its path to where it is now, where it is a sport that caters to you know a to to a lot of you know R and B and rap music. That that anthem to me set the tone for the NBA that you see today without question. And it also set the tone for every all-star game that you see now where it's just an event. It's a concert. You know, it isn't just, you know, the players lining up, okay, we 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 play a game, we go home and we start the season again. So that anthem to me is not only the best anthem of all time in sports history, it might be the most signif- culturally significant a- national anthem of all time. Um like some people will say Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl, but I don't know. First of all, she pre-reco- was pre-recorded. That's the first thing, and secondly, I, I think based on what we've seen politically with 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 the war, I'm not sure that's you know that anthem really has the staying power given how things are in the middle in the Mid- middle East mm-hmm. right now. So, so Marvin's anthem to me is my is my choice. And it's, it's why I, I devoted so much space to it because to me, it is such an influential performance.
0: Yeah. After reading your chapter on that, I completely agree. And my takeaway was just that that was a signal to the audience, to to viewers that we're not going to follow the establishment. We're going to establish our own. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah. It absolutely makes sense. I mean, look, as Joe Cohen, the creator of MSG Network, said to me, the NBA's tradition is that it has no tradition, and that anthem is is proof of that in just over two two minutes and thirty seconds.
0: That was a perfect segue to my next question. Mm-hmm. One underlying theme of the book is that the NBA is constantly evolving, so mm-hmm. I think that makes it harder for traditionalists who are complaining about the latest proposed change that in a lot, of, a lot of cases, ends up growing the game or the league. Yeah. And I think for that reason, because the NBA is constantly changing and evolving, you have fewer traditionalists, like in Major League Baseball, for instance, that are just mm-hmm. so dead set on the ways of the past and resistant to change. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier for the game to evolve. Is that something that, that you've noticed as well, that, Gives the game more flexibility than some of its counterparts.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think what it also allows is it allows for a younger for a younger audience to get into the game. You know, it, it's, yeah,
0: because they can make it what they want. Absolutely,
1: it to be. absolutely. It, it, and that's and I you know that is to me the beauty of, of the NBA is that it is it is never going to stand on its laurels or or, or do the same old same old because they're going to update it for. The audience that has the most disposable income, which is teenagers, folks in their twenties, and, and that is, and that to me is the, the the beautiful part of it. So yeah, they're going to be flexible with the rules. They're going to be flexible with how they they organize the seasons and things like that. And I, I think the fan, I think the fans that are my age, I mean they they the the, the style of play keep, keeps them. The games themselves keep them. But for fans that need more than that, the NBA is, is expert at just sort of giving you a show and giving you something that's new and exciting because that's, what's going to rope you in and baseball. Yeah. Baseball is for, has forever tried to coast on the fumes of being America's pastime and riding on tradition. But that has ultimately hurt it because it can't, it has so much trouble adapting to to changing demographics. And right. I really do believe that baseball is going to be in trouble because it's very hard to get a young audience involved in that, an audience that is increasingly online and, in, and tethered to a screen. They are not really going to be, I think, enamored with a game that, you know, on average lasts three hours. But baseball seems to think that its audience is, is always going to stay and never going to leave. And I don't think that's, I think that's wrong. Um, and yeah. I think football has the advantage of being, sort of just now, you know, if it's now America's religion. You know, every Sunday so many people just gather around to watch the game. Um so I think football is clearly America's favorite, most popular sport, and it's not gonna do anything different unless public perception is so overwhelmingly against the NFL that it's in their benefits to change. I don't understand baseball's reluctance. I, the the best example is for years, baseball has had a problem with with people being hit with foul balls. And at one point, a couple of years ago, there was a whole string of incidents. It, it just, it seemed to happen a lot, like a couple of years ago. And Rob Manfred's response was just sort of, well, we've got to, you know, pull the stadiums and do this and do that. It's like, why kids are getting beaned with foul balls. Just put up netting, make this easy. Just don't drag this out.
0: They eventually did, but it was like, it took so long. It,
1: yeah. it was just it, yeah. so much it,
0: red tape and stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and basketball still is very you know, the NBA is still very nimble at that stuff. Like I kept I kept saying to myself, like if it yeah. was the NBA and they had this problem, it would be done overnight. Like it would just be like, mm-hmm. okay, 'em let's, let's put up nets and let's just get on with it. But baseball thinks that it's this sacrosanct religious thing and it just it's not. It's a sport. It's not telling us mm-hmm. life secrets. It's it's not the gift to to um to eternal youth. It's a sport. And sports sports <laughs> change. You know, sports have to adapt. The NBA is a great example yeah. of that. They're always doing different things. And that's not only is that cool for the younger fans, but it also it also is a chance for old folks like myself to kind of get their hot takes up. It, it promotes discussion and that's a good thing. And baseball, I don't know. Baseball just yeah I love baseball, but they just they're so afraid of rocking an imaginary apple cart. And I, I, I right. it perplexes me to this day why it's so hard for them to change.
0: I have to say, I also absolutely love baseball, but I yeah. 100% take your criticism. I think it's it's perfectly legitimate, and it really highlights – what has made the NBA so successful in becoming this behemoth that you talk about. One other really quick example of many um, in the league's evolution is the three point shot. Greg Popovich, yeah, one of the most successful coaches hates it as you document in the book, yeah. but he was nimble enough to realize and smart enough to realize that he needed it to be successful and relied heavily on it to win the, 2014 championship so yeah, you adapt or, or that, you yeah. die and he understood that i mean i just think that's just a fitting example
1: you're exactly right i think that and that's what you know basketball is is all about like, and that's the thing. basketball has always the nba i should say has always adapted always i mean even this year you had the plane series right i mean that was a new thing people seem to dig that um yeah you know it's funny after the criticism from the from this year's nba draft in terms of the television coverage and you know is it worthwhile television anymore i will bet you a million dollars that the that the the, the the nba's media people will sit down and try and work that out to make it more of an event to make it more special the nba is is all about reinvention it's all about trying to make it relevant for the cool kids but they don't they don't do that at the expense of the game. To me the game still features the best athletes in the world. It's you know the the finals this year were great. I watched every game pretty much. Um you know the playoffs were exciting. The game it's still the best athletes in the world trying to get a, bas- a basketball into a t- into a 10 foot high post. The essence of the game is never going to change. The things around that are going to change to attract new viewers, to attract new fans. The NBA has done a masterful job of not tinkering with the game itself, but tinkering with the things to get you interested in the game. But yeah, analytics, you know, three-point shot, that's that's where you make your points now. It's just math. Mm -hmm. So
0: on a related note to what we were talking about, one potential downside, I think, to the NBA marketing personalities over the game in an effort to draw in more casual fans and expand the influence of the sport and the reach is that um, sometimes a lot of things have been oversimplified. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and this might be more a function of social media, but you could argue that the average Major League Baseball or NFL fan, maybe Major League Baseball is a better example, might have a much better technical understanding of the game. Um, mm-hmm. just because it's discussed more on the pro- broadcast and it, that's how mm-hmm. it's marketed as opposed to narrative-heavy storylines. Mm-hmm. To what extent would you agree with that critique? And if you do, I'd assume you just believe the trade-off is worth it because look what the NBA grew into.
1: No, I I, th- I think you're that's a really good observation. I mean, baseball is is governed by analytics. I think football increasingly so, the NFL, I should say. I think the trade off is worth it. I absolutely think it's worth it. Um, you know, I, I, do think though that we are veering maybe a little bit toward the entertainment side of it. Um, I'll give you an example. If you look at studio shows, um, I would love for inside the NBA to maybe have, maybe hire somebody who can explain, do more X's and O's and more breakdown stuff. Um, Hubie Brown does a great job. Well, Oh, he's on a different network. Um, you know but now it's funny with the, with inside the nba like they're really gearing up on personalities um Candace Parker's really good but i would love if there was somebody with a little more x's and o's like okay here's what we do this and here's how this yeah. guy gets open here and that might you know, just
0: be us that we're a little more old school but i i would maybe. appreciate that too as opposed to a, there's sometimes it's oversimplified where it's like what's your top 5 list of whatever Rankings yeah but and, i think
1: that's across i think that's happening now across the board i mean i think i think yeah, hot yeah. take i think that's that's a casualty th- of hot take culture so. and it's got to be Twitter. more of like a
0: social yeah social media thing now too mm-hmm. a, as opposed to where you were talking about in the book cbs early on made the decision to market personalities i don't think that's as as much of a an outgrowth of that as what you just cited
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely think, look, I think social media is that whole like, well, you know, who's your top five this or your who's your ultimate matchup. That is just that's a that's a byproduct of, you know, the whole embrace debate culture that ESPN uh, brought into the mix, you know, and and that's that's the thing. If you, you know, if you look at ESPN, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, you know, SportsCenter, you know, ESPN didn't really have a lot of those debate shows. They had, you know nfl film specials they had um you know they had they had news programs that kind of cover the nba or uh, or sports center was ran a lot now i mean espn i mean it seems like they're a large block of their programming is debate stuff and also on, e- on sports center that's that's what they do now i mean there's their highlights but that but the, the the debate part is part of their news coverage and I think that's something that is just sort of blossoming, taking on a life of its own. And yeah, I I get tired of that too. I I, I really don't give a shit who the top five point guards are. Sometimes, like I, you know, I want there to be a little bit more difference, a little bit more nuance. But that's just how we are. That's yeah. how we are right now. We we're very much a part of like who's better, Kobe or MJ? Who's this? Who's that? Who's your top five? Who's your top ten? And I, I just think that's that's part of the the quick hit culture, yeah
0: and at the risk of sounding like an elitist i think that the masses love that type of stuff too oh they do so i mean i, I can't really give espn advice on what they should do to reach more fans i think they're doing fine thank you very much
1: no but they're, they're, they're not yeah, yeah they're it's fine. just it's they, a
0: frustration but it's a good discussion to have and um, it is. you don't I just, I explicitly just, yeah, talk I, about it in the
1: book but it's all related Oh, yeah. I mean, look, that's the thing. I mean, it's all part of Pandora's box. You know, I I think with with television, if a little bit is great, a ton is best. And I think if you look at the way that CBS ran the games and the NBA, you know, once that door is open, like you're going to push it wider and wider so more cash can come in. Look, there's a reason why Stephen A. Smith makes I don't know what five million dollars a year because there's a theatricality that people are drawn to, and I think people like theatrics in their sports. I think they like they like theatrics and drama with their commentary and 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 with um and with their news. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that's the era we're in right now, where you know whoever shouts the the loudest gets the most money. Um, I don't know. It's it seems uh. You know, I think it's it's sort of just a, sp- a spinoff of Howard Cosell days, you know. It's just, yeah. you know, it's, instead of Howard Cosell, it's Stephen A. On
0: a slightly different note, but it does relate to social media, Howard Bryant called a phenomenon that's referenced in the book the greenwashing effect that comes into play when sports figures of color speak out about racial mm-hmm. inequities. Definitely yeah. still exists in some circles today, as you know, oh, it, like yeah. um, with regard to athletes like Colin Kaepernick and LeBron Mm -hmm. James, for Mm -hmm. example. But also, there is more of a, yeah, I'm going to get flack for that, but I'm going to still do it anyway. Like um, with Kaepernick and LeBron James, not to say that that didn't happen before, but how do you understand how things have changed over time with regards to that and how much is still the same?
1: I mean, a lot. look, a lot is still the same. Um, Because there are still people who, a lot of people who think of athletes as just commodities that, that, that are that are built for their entertainment they that, they don't, that they're not people yeah Shout exactly exactly and that that is going to persist because there are people that just that cannot fathom an athlete in any sport having an opinion having nuance having a personal life that is against someone's values that is never going to change i i i hope it'll, it'll lessen but I don't think it's ever going to change. You're always going to have that ignorance. You're always going to have that impatience. You're always going to have people that can compartmentalize someone's performance on the playing field and someone's life off of it. With that being said, I do think that what's happening now is that there is more money at stake. So like, for example, someone like LeBron James, he's you know, a millionaire many times over. I think he's even a billionaire now. He can use that. He, you know, he, he. There is less of a consequence for him to speak out because of his financial security. Also, there is a platform for that activism. You know, I think I think of Nike and Colin Kaepernick. I mean that that was a partnership that you know Nike used that to sell a lot of T-shirts and a lot of shoes. So that is becoming almost a. So it's a cultural statement. but it's also a. It can also be a a, a statement that is used for for commerce, for commerce driven purposes. So that's the difference that I see. I mean, I think of someone like, um, like Bill Russell, who was very much an activist and someone who spoke out cream, Abdul Jabbar, they were vilified for the, for their for their, they were, they were shunned. And now I think there is, there is a, there is more financial opportunity to be, there's financial opportunity to be made from speaking out. Um, there's also more amplification with that voice because you can go on social media you, right. can be your, you don't need the media to take your message and twist and possibly twist it or conflate it. You can be your own person and speak your mind and get your followers that way. So it's different in terms of in terms of how the message is delivered in terms of that there is now money to be made from this message, maybe more so than before but there is still but the ignorance that is that is there it's still there and it's 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 never going to go away. Oh, t- um, oh, totally yeah. Yeah. It's never going to go and away. And and I it pains me to say that, but it's yeah. It's sad but it's true.
0: But also yeah. this is a really complicated nuanced topic, but uh Colin Kaepernick was forced out of the out of the NFL and there are yes. differences in politics of course oh, absolutely. in the le- respective leagues. Also mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick wasn't a superstar at the time on the field, so it was easier for NFL teams to rationalize not signing him, even though he was undoubtedly better than a lot of these second and third string quarterbacks that were getting signed, of course. But, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it's, it's a complicated topic that we could talk about for a long time, but because of social media, because of Nike partnering with him with all these factors Mm -hmm. that are true today, he's able, like you said, to get his message out there, amplify it. And, he is vilified by many, but he's also seen as a hero and Absolutely. respected for his outspokenness. So I Absolutely. think times are, are certainly changing, but your point is well taken that so much has stayed the same and sadly w- will always be the case. Yeah. Just winding down, and I really appreciate yeah. your time. There were a few things I learned that I had no idea about uh, before Mm -hmm. reading the book, like the near-player protest before the 1964 All-Star Game. Yeah. Were there things like that, fascinating tidbits that you came across through your reporting that you really
1: didn't have any idea about beforehand? Oh, man. The 64, yeah, the 64 protest, that's huge. I mean, and Elgin Baylor, rest in peace, was a big part of getting that. Uh, organized with Tommy Heinsohn also, um, rest in peace. Uh, let me see. Was there anything that I found fascinating or interesting? Well, I think the one thing that, that surprised me was how close the NBA was to not having a television contract in the late 1970s. I mean, David Stern literally had to beg, um, Neil Pilson at CBS sports to keep the NBA, uh, NBA on the air. Um, you know, yeah, um, that's a good, one. Uh, that you know, Frank Smith was the new president of CBS Sports, and he he took over for um, uh, Bob Wessler, who would, depending on who you talked to, resigned or been fired, and he didn't want the NBA on its docket. He wanted he wanted nothing to do with the NBA. And Neil Pilsen, who was sort of like you know, a, who was a lieutenant of both um, Wessler and Smith, said, you know, Frank, like we can't do that. We have a handshake agreement with the NBA. We need to honor it, and. Frank Smith said, "Well, I don't care. It's not my deal. Call Larry O'Brien in here, and let's get. Let's we, we're going to end this. And you know, Frank Smith had made that announcement, and then David Stern basically took Neil Pilsen outside and just pleaded with him to keep the NBA on on uh, on CBS. And Neil Pilsen was able to convince his boss to keep the NBA on. But I was just amazed at how close the NBA was to being." a non-entity on television. Like you, I mean, now I take it for granted. Oh, the NBA is on ESPN. It's on ABC. It's on TNT. It's on regional sports networks. But if the NBA hadn't been on a big three network in the late 1970s, it would have been, it would have died most likely. And I, I that was, I think it was fascinating that the NBA was, was this close to not having a, a television contract with, with a major uh, television station. Mm-hmm. That blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about
0: the timing of the book's release. So that was on December 1st of last year, months into the pandemic and Mm -hmm. three weeks ahead of the delayed 2021 NBA season. In your experience, just from people you've talked to and discussions you've had with your publisher, how did that affect how
1: readers bought or consumed the book, if at all? You know, that's a good question, man. I, I No one... No one in Simon and Schuster has really said otherwise. Um has said, oh yeah, well this this imp- you know, the pandemic improved it or worsened it. Um you know, I, that's a And it's question. hard to know because it's your first book too. Well, so you have no my, yeah. nothing really to compare it to. Right? No, I don't have anything to compare it to. I mean, I I don't know. I, I have I have absolutely no idea what what the impact was. I mean I I would imagine. I mean, look. It, to me, it, it's my first book. I was thrilled to write it. Um, I've wanted to write a book for years. This is a book I'd want to write for many years. Um, I was just thrilled to have the book out in the public and to have people reach out to me to say that they liked it, or in some cases that they didn't like it. Um, you know, just that <laughs> and it, people read it and had a reaction was just to me amazing. Look, I mean, I, I've said this a lot, both privately and, and to people that I, people in my life, and people that I've talk to for, to in promoting promoting the book the book is the triumph you know the sales are going to be what they are the the factors that um that affected publication or consumption are what they are but nothing can dispute the fact that i wrote a book i published it and it's out there so many people want to write a book and they don't they don't get a chance to do it they don't, they can't find a publisher that i was able to write a book when 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't think I'd even be in writing that to me is that to me is the triumph that anything else after that is immaterial. So I would love for the book to sell. I'd love for the book to find more of an audience. Um, but I am just, I am thrilled. Um, and I have to remind myself daily because I get wrapped up in this stuff too. Um, I look at the Amazon numbers. I look at, I look at, you know, how the book is trending But the fact that I wrote a book and it's mine, and that I can show this to my daughter and say, Hey, look, you know, Olivia, if you want to follow your dreams, you can do it. I did it. It was hard, but it's here. It is that to me trumps anything. And the way that I look at it too is it's a learning experience. You know, I learned a lot writing this book. If I write a second book, knock on what I hope I do, Um, I'll, I'll learn from having written this one. And yeah, I. I'm too old and I've done this too long to be petty most of the time. So I, you know, my hope is that the book continues to sell. Well, I'm hoping I can talk to more people like yourself who seem to enjoy the book and want to know more about it. Um, But, you know, if I can keep, if this book opens one more door and allows me to, to keep writing for a living and to provide um provide a living for my family and, and to show my daughter that you know there is a there is a point to pursuing your dreams i'll, I'll be very happy with that
0: that's definitely a healthy approach and to me it's extremely inspirational to and it definitely was a triumph just as we close out because it takes a village to use the saying <laughs> to re- yeah to write a book like this, especially one that covers as much ground as yours did. I just want to give you an opportunity um, before we close out to shout out again, you did it in the acknowledgements, but on air, some of the people in your life that most significantly helped make this book happen.
1: Well, I'm going to start with my wife, Laura, who's um, we just celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. um congratulations thank you she by far has been the most inspirational person in my life she grounds me she's inspired me i mean she has she saw some when i met her it's funny i was and this is in the book i mean i was unemployed i was um adrift i think it was 2000 we met met in 2000 july 2008 so it was right before the great recession bowled everyone over and she stuck with me and she saw something in me that i didn't see and and nurtured me and and cared for me and and inspired me to to keep at this when really common sense and my checkbook would indicate that not writing would be a, a good decision but she mm-hmm. is you know she is um she's the person who I, I i can't think enough and this book is as much hers as anyone else's um You know, uh, another person in the book who, uh, who made this book possible, I think would be, um, you know, would be Sean Fury, great basketball writer. He wrote a book on the history of of the jump shot called rise and fire. I mean, he was, you know, reviewed, you know, he, he helped me with the proposal. He, he, he has been such an advocate for this book. Um, He and his wife Louise, my agent have just been so supportive for, for me being a first time author and, you know, an, an author in, in his forties, no less, which is not exactly a sexy proposition. Um, they've been huge. I mean, my parents. I mean, they. Again, you know, they could have easily said, you know what, like you shouldn't be doing this anymore. This is just making you unhappy. This is not. This is something that you, you know, you you're, you're past your prime. My parents, Dot and Lou, they've just been, you know, they have always been supportive. Whether it was with a loan, whether it was just an encouraging word, and I am beyond gratified to have them in my life. They were avid readers. So they introduced me to reading early. So, yeah, I mean, those are three. I mean, my brother Dave, I mean, was just someone who drove me to just quit my job and, you know, go out on my own. So yeah, it's a lot. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people are responsible for this book coming out. And, you know, whenever there were tough days with this, I always said to myself, like, look, you know, this book is not just for you. It's about these people. Cause you know, these, you know, I, you know, family members, total strangers, you know, people, people support you with this. They, they direct you to sources. They, they, and they take, they give you their time. And so when you write a book um, and you'll experience this, like you're not just writing a book for yourself, but you're writing it for the people that have been there for you from the get go. Yeah. And that's what, that's mm-hmm. what And Writing this book was a great reminder of who has been, who's been supportive in my life.
0: And I know you were just scratching the surface and and you go into detail about all of the people who helped make this possible and the acknowledgements. And I hope people read the acknowledgements too. But just in closing, as I've told you before the recording and, and on air, I really enjoyed the book and I'm grateful that you took a moment to come onto the podcast and talk about it. So, thanks a lot for doing that. It was a pleasure.
1: No, Aaron, my pleasure. Thank you for this. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks again to author Pete Croato for appearing on the show. And of course, thank you to our loyal listeners and those tuning in for the first time. Your host for this episode was me, Aaron Fishman. You can follow our show on Twitter at OnTheNBAB and me personally at BuyAaronFish. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. You can listen to more episodes and subscribe to the show by searching On the NDAB wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated as they really do help more people find the show. OTNB is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. See you next time.